Oh man, about three quarters of about <laughs> no, about one third of the way through that, I had a sneeze coming on. <laughs> I was I was fighting it tooth and nail. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Dorowski, and we are joined by special guest... Kirsty Christensen! Returning. Hello again! Returning Hello. All-Star. If I get two more, I get one free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, today we are talking about Celia, Celia. Celia? I went with Celia. How do you say it? Celia. Okay. Celia Bowen, from the 2011 novel <clears throat> The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. And every time I say Aaron Morgenstern, I want to say... S. Morgenstern, <laughs> chapter one. <laughs> but this is a different Morgenstern. Yes. yes. This is Aaron. Uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, and this will be a great chance for you to go and listen to this because the audiobook of The Night Circus is read by Jim Dale, who uh, famously read the audiobooks of Harry Potter. And you could go and listen to this one for free if you go and get a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. There are over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player, and that, of course, includes The Night circus and if you find this interesting or it sounds interesting as we're getting into the short summaries i recommend you just go listen to it because uh i have the summary and it's a great summary this is one of the best summaries ever but (laughs) it is not going to do justice to this book (laughs) in your own humble opinion (laughs) yes everybody loves it nobody argues with this it is huge it's great (laughs) so uh just quickly uh, this is the story of uh this girl named uh, celia and she's a magician and she is uh, obligated from childhood to participate in a competition with uh, somebody else that she doesn't know who it is exactly. And together they, <laughs> the... <laughs> I'm really interested to see how your gate, how your, uh, how your long summary of this goes. But um, <laughs> basically she's a magician. She works in a circus. It's uh, called the night circus because it only happens at night. And there are other interesting people there, and she's engaged in a competition of magic. And if that sounds interesting to you, then you should uh, listen to this on audible.com or pick up a copy of it at your local library or on Amazon. We'll have a link in show notes where you can pick it up. Yeah. few bits of trivia about this book. Uh, this is Aaron Morgenstern's first and thus far only novel. And it reached... Uh, as- she could probably just retire. Yeah. I, I saw it had something... It had tens of thousands of reviews on Goodreads, or maybe it was even 100,000 reviews on Goodreads. I'm like, a lot of people have read this book because it became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I saw it uh, saying number two on the bestsellers list, but I've also seen a cover of a book that says number one. Or, so I don't know. <laughs> Uh, My book says number one national bestseller. Okay, yeah. Um, But despite that, Morgan Stern was rejected by over 30 agents before she was able to get representation for this. So keep plugging away, authors. Just keep sending out those those submissions. Uh, And the first version of this book was written for NaNoWriMo. Which, wow. uh, NaNoWriMo, if you're unfamiliar, is in November, um, aspiring authors, uh, try and write a 50,000 word manuscript, cause that's at least 50,000 words, uh, a manuscript for a novel in that month. That's the goal is to just make people write. Uh, and that was where this book started. Have you ever done NaNoWriMo? I have not. You care stuff? No. Have you ever... Do you feel tempted to do NaNoWriMo every single November? I do. I have. I do too. <laughs> I have manuscripts. None of them were written in a month. <laughs> every, every like, October 15th, I think, 
this is my year. And then, <laughs> and then I realize you don't have time to write a whole entire novel in the month of November. Yeah. But man, I totally should. Cause I could write the night, the next night circus. It's in me somewhere. Do you, do you feel that <laughs> yeah, urge, right. Kirsten? No, I actually don't. <laughs> um, so, so I'm a big fan of the, of the writing excuses podcast. I've been listening to that for six or seven or eight years, but I don't want to be a writer. And I feel like if I've been listening to it for that long and I still don't want to be a writer, I just don't, I like analyzing okay. literature. I like organizing literature. <laughs> I like adding TV tropes pages for works that I love, but you know, all other people do the creative heavy lifting. How Ballpark that? figure. How many TV tropes pages have you added? So how have I added things to? Oh, like a dozen. Okay. But maybe three or four of those have been like things I created from scratch. And I have my own trope that I proposed and got accepted. What was your trope? Um, <laughs> N plus one sequel title. Okay. So like, Oceans 11 Oceans becomes... 11, Oceans 12, Oceans 13, right? And there wasn't a thing for that. Right. So I had to come up with examples. There's like 101 Dalmatians, 102 Dalmatians. There's a few other examples. So. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little teeny page. It's not like changing yeah. the world or anything, but... So there's my claim to fame. Way to go. Well done. It's a very small segment of the world that cares, that is impressed if you've like proposed a new trope, but like the people who know are like, wow, that's impressive. Because so, so, you, you think know. most tropes have already been identified. Yes. Yes. We're done. You know what else is impressive? What the amount the amount of uh, protagonist listeners who have been to Amazon to uh, help us out by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. So if you go to that link, listeners, and uh, make any purchases, then we get a little kickback, and that's amazing. And we very much appreciate that. All right, guys, <clears throat> we're gonna have a, a summary now of a. My copy of the book is three hundred eighty-five pages. Todd, how many pages was your copy of the book? Mine is f- mine is five hundred and fifteen. I feel like. I got lost in the labyrinth somewhere. <laughs> well, that's deliberate. Uh, and, and we have mentioned, Kirsten, how many copy pages did you just 387. 387. Who's the, well, I'll never mind. I'll find that out later. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to quiz you as the publisher in addition. I can, I can find that out on my own. <laughs> um, let's just say we've, we've mentioned a couple times when there's uh, lots of like back and forth scenes, scene cutting, it makes it a harder um, summary to write. So just hold on to your seats, everyone. And this is going to be, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the longest summary that we've ever had, but I'm going to try and keep it quick. We're going to power through this. All right. Here we go. Prologue. The Night Circus is an event that arrives unannounced. No newspaper advertising, no poster announcements. One day there's an empty field. The next there's a massive series of black and white circus tents behind a gated fence with a sign saying it opens at nightfall and closes at dawn. A sign proclaims it to be Le Cirque de Rêve. Um, I don't speak French. Kirsten, you speak French, correct? Is it Le Cirque de Rêve? Yes. yes, yes, that's the what I said. Of dreams. Yes. Exactly what you said. There's going to be a few more chances for you to correct me as I go through this. I'm just going to say it with confidence, and then you give me a look when you say I was wrong. All right, part one, primordium. Uh, okay, listeners, other thing. I'm going to say a lot of dates in this. Try and listen to the dates. Each chapter begins with a month and a date, um, and it bounces around the time. So I'm going to try and signal when it's really important. But this is kind of our beginning date is February 1873. In New York, a stage magician going by the name Prospero in The Enchanter unexpectedly has a five-year-old girl arrive in his dressing room, accompanied by a suicide note from the girl's mother, indicating that the child, Celia, is now under his sole care. He's perturbed. Until he insults her mother and a teacup on the table explodes, intrigued, Prospero makes the cup reform and decides this girl might be interesting. Several months later, he mails a letter. October 1873. 
London in London, Prospero is performing for a sold-out crowd. After his performance, a man in a gray suit named Alexander goes to Prospero's dressing room. Prospero introduces his daughter Celia to the man in gray, and the two men make a wager that seemingly has something to do with Celia's burgeoning magical talents, uh, and that's going to involve a task against a pupil that Alexander's going to choose. Then Alexander puts a silver ring on Celia's finger, and the ring shrinks until it literally burns her skin and disappears into her finger, leaving a scar. And then uh, Prospero gives a gold ring to the man in gray for him to put onto his student whenever he finds one. The challenge is vague. They agree it will be staged at a venue arranged by... All right, how do you all pronounce his name? Chandresh? Chandresh? How did you say that name? It's C-H-A-N-D-R-E-S-H. I think Chandresh. Chandresh? Christophe Lefebvre. 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 All right, we're going to go with Chandris. I'm just going to say that uh, from here on out. Uh, but everything else other than that, Chandris is going to have the the venue. Uh, the, everything else is very open-ended and big. Then in January 1874, Alexander, or the man in gray, adopts a boy and begins teaching him through books. Then from 1875 to 1880, uh, we're given brief descriptions of the training that Celia and the boy each receive. Prospero travels the world doing his shows while informally coaching Celia. When a bird from one of his shows, uh, shows is injured, he lets her try to fix it, but uh, when she fails, he kills the bird in front of her and explains that living things need different kinds of magic and she should figure out how to work on that. The boy continues uh, to learn from books with a distant impersonal training style. Prospero then cuts each of Celia's fingertips and until she's able to heal them perfectly. Uh, Alexander puts a gold ring on the boy's finger and explains he is now bound, but he doesn't know need to know to whom or for what purpose. <laughs> uh, May to June of 1884, the, the adopted boy is now almost 20 years old, and he's uh, left alone in London and with a flat with lots of books that he can read and notebooks for him to fill with his theories, spells, and charms. He meets a young lady named Isabel, who found one of his notebooks that he had dropped, and this girl happens to read tarot cards, and he uses illusions (laughs) to impress her, and then he kisses her. And now we jump to July uh, through November of 1884, and Prospero has retired from the stage. But he starves Celia so that she'll appear almost dead, and makes her perform as a medium to earn money. Uh, The boy, who has introduced himself as Marco, so this is the name he's going to use throughout the book, is Marco. Uh, He is practicing magic with Isabel when the man in gray arrives and tell him, tells him that he needs to take a job with Mr. Lefebvre or Ch- Chandras, uh, and that the boy needs to focus on preparing himself for the challenge. Celia uh, claims that she is ready for the challenge, and in response, Prospero breaks both her wrists, and, or breaks her wrist, and has her, and she has to spend an hour mending the fragments of her bones into place and healing them. Uh, she walks into Prospero's private room, and she sees him looking at his hand, which is fading into translucency. He covers his hand and kicks her out of his room. December 1884, Chandresh is throwing a knife at a dartboard that holds a clipping of a newspaper review of his last production. It is a glowingly positive review, but the last sentence reads that Chandras dazzles his audiences with spectacle that is almost transcendent and Tandris is furious and determined to make a show that is transcendent interlude you step through a curtain into the circus all right september 1897 cut to a scene 13 years ahead of when Chandris was throwing the knife now an 11 year old boy named bailey is dared by his sister to go into the night circus during the daytime and bring back proof that he was there despite his nerves he squeezes past the gate which warns that trespassers will be exsanguinated <laughs> and he walks around <laughs> the empty path of the circus until he meets a red-haired girl uh, a red-haired girl about his own age who rushes him back out of the circus for proof that he was there she gives him one of her white gloves and when he thanks her she says you're welcome bailey even though he never told her his name 
February 1885. Now we're jumping back to just a couple months after Le, uh, Chandrish, I'm using that name now, Chandrish, was throwing knives at a wonderful, at, at the wonderful review. He's having one of his famous and mysterious midnight dinners, a uh, tradition that began because of his insomnia, his insomnia and his own love of mystery. The first course is served precisely at midnight and the dishes are all exotic and beyond delicious. An invitation to a midnight dinner is coveted, but tonight there are only five guests. Anna Padva, who is a retired ballerina, but currently one of the best seamstresses in the world. Ethan W. Barris, a renowned engineer and architect. Tara and Lainey Burgess, who are dancer, actress, librarian, advice givers, uh, who are extremely observant. <laughs> and the last guest is a man in a gray suit, referred to only as Mr. A.H. After the meal, uh, Chandrish and his assistant Marco explain their plans for a circus unlike any other. And they ask the guests if they would like to collaborate, but it all must be kept secret. March... 1885, a newspaper announces that Prospero has passed away. Celia, sorting through all the condolences, comes upon a gray letter addressed to her father that simply reads, Your Move. She goes upstairs where Prospero has almost faded away to nothing and shows him the card, and the challenge has begun. September of 1885. Later that year, there's another midnight dinner with the same group as before, Mister, uh, though Mr. Barris is away tracking down a clockmaker in Germany, and they note that Mr. A.H., the man in the gray suit, attends very irregularly. At this dinner, a woman named Sukiko arrives, uninvited. Invited. She's a contortionist uh, with an elaborate tattoo over her whole body that includes symbols from many cultures and traditions. She performs for the small gathering, and, Ch- and Chandresh says this is exactly what he wants for the circus. Unusual, yet beautiful, provocative, while remaining elegant. And Sukiko is hired for the unfinished circus and becomes a staple at the circus dinners. Uh, when it's that group, they call them circus dinners instead of midnight dinners. In 1885, Mr. Barris hires a clockmaster, Friedrich Thiessen, to build a dreamlike clock that over the hours will transform, changing colors from black to white, and it will have a mechanical juggler that adds one ball for every hour and other fantastic things. The clockmaster builds it and is paid an exorbitant amount of money for the clock, which Bears says is perfection. April 1886, illusionists are now auditioning at a theater. When Marco calls Celia's number, he is struck by how radiant she is. In the theater, Chandras and Padva are the only members of the audience. Chandras sees Celia, and he says they are auditioning illusionists, not the lovely assistants. <laughs> and then under pro- protest, Chandras f- says, fine, let her, let her go ahead and do her performance, and she immediately wows them with her illusions. Uh, especially Marco is quite impressed. And still in April of 1886, Marco, who is a bit panicked, he goes back to his flat where Isabel is still hanging out. Uh, Isabel's the one that read tarot cards. Uh, he says he now knows who his opponent is, and he thought he was prepared, but he doesn't know how she did the magic that she was able to perform. He also doesn't know how the challenge is supposed to work, uh, especially if Celia is going to be traveling with the circus while he stays in London as Chandresh's assistant. Isabel um, asks if she could travel with the circus as a fortune teller to keep an eye on Celia, and she'll write back to him with information. Now, Marco can't quite put a finger on why he thinks this is a bad idea, uh, but he does think it's a bad idea, but he eventually relents and says, fine, I will allow you, my longtime romantic partner, to go into the circus to watch this woman who he's very attracted to. Interlude. In the courtyard of the circus, you see fantastic performers and one glowing cauldron of fire that lights up the sights. And interlude. October 1902. We cut back to Bailey. So this is 1902 now. We last saw him as an 11-year-old kid being dared to go back into the circus. He's now 16, and his maternal grandmother wants to pay for him to go to Harvard, but his dad wants him to stay home and work at the farm. Uh, one time while visiting his grandmother, she says that he doesn't have to go to university, but she wants him to follow his dreams and not be stuck on the farm, which is clearly not his hope nor dream. She also says that she let her daughter, daughter marry a farmer because it was her dream, and Bailey's father, quote, forgets that he was someone dream once 
End quote. And when he tries to force Bailey to choose to stay on the farm, he's turning his back on dreaming. Uh, back at the farm, a moody Bailey discovers that the night circus has returned and he cannot wait to go there that night. Part two, illumination. October 13th and 14th, 1886, we cut back to the opening night of the very first night circus. A set of twins are born at that night uh, to the wife of the night circus's wildcat tamer. The boy is born six minutes before midnight the, uh, and the girl seven minutes after midnight. Raised at the circus, they receive nicknames Puppet and Widget, and they have shockingly red hair. Uh, also on the opening night, Marco throws a notebook he has prepared into the cauldron in the front courtyard of the night circus. Precisely at midnight, the bonfire is lit and a wave of magic explodes across the night circus, though most people don't even notice it. Chantresh, though, he feels the force of the magic and is quite staggered by it. Interlude. You enter a tent that has acrobats bats who perform amazing feats directly above you with no nets between the performers and the audience. You have to stare straight up to see them do their act. October 1902. We cut back to 16-year-old Bailey, who wanders through the night circus and finds everything is even better than it had been in his memory. He's particularly struck by a very slow-moving statue-like figure who stands on a platform that has a sign reading in memoriam, but no other information. 1887 to 1889. Bouncing back in time now, the circus is up and running, and Marco summons the man in gray so that he can try to understand the challenge better. The man only explains, you have been given a venue to work within. You present your skills to the best of your ability, and your opponent does the same. You do not interfere with each other's work. It shall continue in this manner until there is a victor. victor. It is not that complex. End quote. Similarly, Celia is pressing her now transparent father for explanations about what she's supposed to be doing. He is upset with her because she has collaborated with Barris, the engineer, to make a magical carousel. He explains that she should be pushing the boundaries of what your skills can do. Using the circus as a showplace, you prove yourself better and stronger. You do everything you can to outshine your opponent. Marco continues to receive letters from Isabel, uh, but they never have as much information about the illusionist as he would like. At the, at the circus, a new tent has appeared, and Celia explores it. It contains a magical ice garden, and she knows it is her opponent who has designed this tent. When the circus returns to London, Isabel visits Marco, and he notices that she's wearing a bracelet of his hair and her hair braided together. And though Isabel tries to hide this bracelet, it is gone when she returns to the night circus that evening. September 1889. Thiessen the clockmaker is on holiday in France when it is recommended that he go see a new circus in town. He recognizes his clock and is given free admission, but is wholly unprepared for how magical the circus is. He goes every night until it leaves. November 1890, the red-haired twins are now four years old, and Celia is chaperoning them as they run through the circus. In their childlike rambling, the girl, Poppet, says that she's sad they're going to put the nice lady in the ground. Celia asks who told her that, and Poppet says, the stars. Widget doesn't see things in the stars, he sees them on people. Celia asks for a demonstration, and he starts to describe her childhood, and is starting to describe a ghost of a man who can follow her around when Celia uses her magic to cut off what he sees. He's sad, but then Celia shows him them a bit of magic and asks if the twins would like to be trained in how to do it. Side note, do we ever see Poppet and Widget's parents in this entire book? I don't think so. <laughs> I no. think they do. <laughs> well, I love their names. They're like two of my most favorite names that oh, yeah. I've come across in yeah. fiction recently. <laughs> I love them. All right. Uh, May 1891. Marco visits Isabel in the tent where she does fortune telling, and he asks her why she has not written to him about the new tent containing the wishing tree. Isabel says it's brand new and she hasn't had time, and Marco says his competitor made it. September of 1891. The circus is in London, in London and Sukiko, the contortionist, invites Celia to a midnight dinner. Though not on the guest list, Celia is welcomed in, and the usual guests adopt her into their group immediately. 1891 to 1892, Thiessen, the clockmaker, has some articles published in a newspaper about his experiences with the night circus. The articles are published all over Europe, and soon Thiessen becomes the center of a sort of fan club of the night circus, a group who call themselves reviewers. 
Rêveurs. Yeah, basically what I said. Uh, that means dreamers, everyone. Uh, they write to each other, uh, and they try to keep each other informed of where the night circus is at. Uh, they adopt a uniform of sorts when at the circus wearing all black and white, except for a scarf or hat of brilliant red, so that they can identify other ardent fans of the circus. And Thiessen receives a letter from a new reviewer. One more time. Okay. Or yeah. Rever. Uh, and this new Rever is named Celia Bowen. Uh, who you should know is the illusionist by this point. Uh, September to December of 1893, Marco visits Barris the engineer and asks him, how much do you know about the night circus? And Barris immediately says, he knows that there's real magic going on and that Celia is Marco's opponent. So he actually knows about the contest as well. Barris says that he collaborated on the carousel with Celia after she asked what he would engineer if he did not have constraints such as gravity to deal with. <laughs> Uh, and then Marco asks Barris to help him design a collaborative space where he and Celia can both add designs and additions. Uh, Barris designs a tent that is intended to be manipulated by both sides of the contest, though he will never tell either what the other side is doing. January 1894, Tara Burgess, one of the sisters who attends the circus midnight dinners, visits Barris and asks what he has noticed. They hint at the fact that neither of them have aged a single day since the night circus uh, opened. And Tara- How long has it been up to at this point? Uh, hold on, it's 1894. The actual opening night is in... It's been like 10 years? Yeah, 10 years about. Okay. I've, okay, I can't find it, but it's about 10 years. Tara, though, she says that she doesn't enjoy uh, everything that never-aging actually entails. Like, it's, it's kind of a pain for her. Uh, and then March 1894, on a particularly rainy night when the night circus is closed, Celia has a drink with Isabel, who does a tarot card reading for her. Isabel says the cards are not entirely clear, but Isabel is in a shadowed conflict or contest, and her unknown adversary will be revealed soon. Celia leaves and is several blocks away when she notices that the rain is not even splashing on her. The umbrella which she has, uh, she realizes, is not hers, and it seems to be magically repelling all water away from, away from her, even if she sticks her hand out from underneath the umbrella. The water doesn't actually touch her. Then Marco calls out to her and says he thinks she grabbed his umbrella by mistake and celia now knows who her opponent is interlude you enter a hall of mirrors but these mirrors don't just distort vision they show you impossible reflections october 1902 we're back with bailey he's exploring the circus this is 16 year old bailey uh and he comes upon the fortune teller's tent and she tells him that he's part of a chain of events that he will and, and that he's going to have a very large responsibility uh, bouncing backwards, November 1894, the red-haired twins are talking, and Poppet says that she's having visions of things unraveling, and something that looks like red paint spilled all over the ground. To help calm her down, Widget tells her the story of a wise old wizard who shared his secrets with a beautiful young woman who then trapped him in a tree. But in a way, the wizard gained immortality, because as his tree grew, he grew. And when its acorns grew to new trees, he was in those trees, too. April 1895, Tara Burgess uh, tries to visit the man in gray, uh, to see if he can shed shed more light on what is really happening with the night circus and those who had planned it. He refuses to tell her anything and magically manipulates her into thinking that she needs to go to the train station and leave town right away. At the station, she sees the man in gray arguing with a ghost or a transparent man, and she steps forward to go and see with whom he is talking, and she is hit by a train. April 1895, Celia Bowen visits Thiessen, and he realizes that the woman with whom he's been writing as a fan of the Night Circus is actually the illusionist who works for the Night Circus. He's delighted to find out who she is, and she is happy to shed her mask. She says that she loves seeing the circus through an outsider's eyes, and she asks him why he doesn't ask her how, he, how she does her tricks. And he says, I prefer to remain unenlightened to better appreciate the dark. April 1895, the funeral of Tara Burgess is a solemn affair. Sukiko and 
Isabel have a conversation where Sukiko asks if Tara committed suicide because she couldn't reconcile reality uh, with what she was half experiencing as someone intimate with the circus but still an outsider. Interlude, you wander a magical labyrinth. October 1902. Bailey runs into Poppet and Widget at the circus. This is, again, 16-year-old Bailey. And they wander the circus together. Poppet says she knew his name when they first met because the stars told her that he'd be there. And when they visit an attraction called the Stargazer, Poppet is overwhelmed by a blinding vision of the future. August 1896... So bouncing back in time at the end of a midnight dinner, Celia realizes that she left her shawl behind. And when she goes back for it, Marco is holding it and they finally have a good long talk. Uh, they discuss their different styles of magic, how neither of them really know what's going on <laughs> with the, the contest that they're in. And then Marco gives Celia a tour of the house. They do some card tricks together. Celia stabs her hand clean through to show that, that she can heal herself. <laughs> This is one of my most favorite uh, <laughs> scenes from the book. Uh, but she notes that she can't heal others. Uh, and Marco shows that he can manipulate reality. And he goes out and shows her that there's a half-built garden behind the house. And then he transforms it into what it will look like when it's all done. Though this is only an illusion, it looks uh, fantastically real. They wander some more. And when their skin touches for the first time, a magical charge ripples through the room and it shakes everything. And then Celia inquires about Chan- Chandresh. And Marco says he's unfocused and he implies... Uh, that Marco has manipulated Chandresh's mind to prevent him from becoming too curious about the Night Circus as Tara Burgess did, which resulted in her death. Marco takes uh, Celia's hand and they focus on controlling the energy so it doesn't shake everything and focusing their energy together, and then Celia leaves. Part 3, Intersections. Interlude. You look at, at statues, uh, but they're not statues. They're people, but they're so still, they could be statues. But if you stare long enough, they are moving subtly like people. And this particular one that you're looking at is a man and a woman who are almost embracing, but never touch. October 13th, 1899, on the 13th anniversary... Rather than the traditional 10th anniversary, a grand celebration is held for the circus. It is at Chandresh's mansion, and all the performers are there. Marco whispers to Celia that he wishes that he could ask her to dance, but both their mentors are there, as well as all their acquaintances who know Marco only as Chandresh's assistant, who never actually mingles with the circus performers. Later, Marco pulls Celia aside and speaks flirtatiously with her when the man in gray arrives and says he needs to speak with Marco. He warns Marco against a relationship with Celia, and Marco asks when the challenge will be over. The man in gray says it will end when there is a victor. The last challenge lasted 37 years. (laughs) Marco storms out of the ballroom, and he gives Celia a very passionate kiss that causes everyone in the room to turn and stare. Then he uses magic to wipe the moment from all of their memories, but not Celia's. October 1902. Back to Bailey, 16-year-old Bailey, wandering the circus. Uh, the twins have to go to a performance with their trained kittens. So their parents are the, the large <laughs> animal uh, trainers, and they just train kittens. And so he goes to explore the circus on his own. He finds a room with jars that have scents that are so real, he feels like it really is Christmas when he smells it, or that he's really on a beach just by unstopping the, the jar and smelling it. March 1900. Chandresh is drinking heavily and he's unable to focus on new projects. In the past, he's always been able to mount some astounding production and then let it go once it is up and running, but the circus bothers him. He can't put his thoughts about it together. He breaks into Marco's office and he finds a notebook with the signatures and hairs of all the circus performers and planners, along with unknown symbols drawn all around them. Marco finds him and removes this moment from his memory, leaving Chandresh even more confused than he was before. That evening, still drinking heavily, Chandresh has a long conversation with a transparent man. That is not good. We don't... 
1900. Lainey Burgess visits Padva, and they agree that Chandresh is no longer himself. Then Lainey visits Mr. Barris, who says that he doesn't mind the oddness of his life now. He moves cities and hires a new staff uh, every few years, and nobody realizes that he's never getting any older. He asks Lainey to marry him, but she says she can't, because she'll never know if he really chose her or is only asking because Tara died, and he never knew which sister he was in love with. Lainey has tea with Celia and confronts her about the game within the circus. Celia acknowledges that there's more happening than just a circus. Lainey drops her teacup which shatters and Celia repairs it. Lainey asks why Celia didn't stop the cup from shattering in the first place. And Celia just says, I don't know. Lainey replies, I'm tired of everyone keeping their secrets so well that they get other people killed. We are all involved in your game. And it seems we are not as easily repaired as teacups. June 1901. Marco visits Celia after one of her performances, and Marco asks what happened to Celia's father. She explains that he wanted to remove himself from the physical world, and she gives the example of a glass of wine. The glass contains the wine in the physical world. If you remove the glass and the wine falls into the ocean, it's still there. It's just very diluted. Her father was overambitious and needed a touchstone to help keep him track of himself, and instead he tried to dilute himself through the entire world. Now he can only rarely take a ghost-like shape, and it's very hard for him to interact with the physical world. Marco makes some awesome illusions using his magic and this includes like make it seem like they are in a ship made out of books on a sea of ink it is fantastic <laughs> so cool <laughs> and marco asks if she will come away with him and leave the circus and she asks if he's ever really tried to plan to do that and right then he's he starts to try and think of specifics of what it would take for them to leave the circus behind and thinking about the details and logistics causes a fiery pain to burn from his ring scar and it spreads over his entire body if they ever truly try to leave they experience incapacitating pain marco asks what her power source is that she uses to keep her half of the circus together and she doesn't understand. He says he uses the bonfire in the courtyard to keep his half functioning. And she says she just uses her willpower. <laughs> so they're doing very different kinds of magic. October 30th, 1902. Uh, Poppet visits 16-year-old Bailey at his farm. So this is now, we're just a couple years separated on these two timelines. The The last bit was in 1901, where, whereas the 16-year-old Bailey is in October of 1902. Poppet visits Bailey at his farm and asks him to run away with the circus. She says she's had a vision, and if the circus is to su- survive, it needs Bailey. He, can, he says he can't commit to that. Uh, but this is the last night the circus will be in town, and Poppet says if he visits tonight, she wants it to mean that he's coming with them. If he isn't going to come, this moment right now needs to be goodbye. Bailey doesn't know what he should do. Then Poppet gives him a kiss, and Bailey says, quote, he knows in that moment that he will follow her anywhere. <laughs> October 30th, 1901. So back to 1901. Uh, basically one year before uh, the 16-year-old Bailey in the circus. Celia Bowen has a conversation with the man in gray that nobody overhears. October 31st to November 1st, 1901. Marco visits Isabel's tent and tells her that he is in love with Celia. Heartbroken, Isabel... Uh, removes a box from under her table, which includes an item of Marco's and of Celia's that she had braided together to help keep the circus in balance. She destroys her charm, and then immediately she hears Poppet screaming. October 31st, 1902. So jumping ahead a year from Isabel undoing that charm. Uh, Widget and Poppet wait for Bailey. Poppet tells Widget that in her vision, there's bright burning light at the circus, and Bailey was there. October 31st to November 1st, 1901, jumping back a year, Chandresh is at the circus, and he's following the man in gray. They both wander through the circus, and Marco is following Chandresh worried because of his increasingly addled state of mind. Though Marco loses track of Chandress when he pops into Isabel's tent to break her heart, and while he's doing that, um, Chandress pulls out a silver knife, and he throws it at the man in gray's back. And at the last second, the man in gray steps aside, and the knife buries itself into Thiessen's chest, the clockmaker who is the head of the reviewers. <laughs> 
Interlude. You enter a tent called the Pool of Tears. You take a black stone and stand at the edge of a shallow pool. As you look into it, regrets, disappointments, sorrows, and lost chances come to your mind. You drop the stone, and you feel lighter as you exit the tent. October 30th and 31st, 1902. So this is, this is the future 16-year-old Bailey. Uh, he's writing a goodbye note for his family and packing his things. His sister sees him leaving, and he is rude in the way that only a teenage sibling can be. And then he leaves home and goes to the circus, only to find an empty field. November 1st, 1901. Uh, so back... One year, uh, the man in gray suit and the man in the gray suit talks to Celia's ghost father on his way out of the circus. The man in gray says this has gone too far. And the ghost father is all for the chaos, insisting his daughter is well on her way to winning. November 1st, 1901 at Marco's flat. Celia shows up in a bloodstained dress dress. Excuse me. She tries to heal. Uh, she had tried to heal Thiessen but failed. Celia says she invited the man in gray because she wanted a verdict about who was going to win the contest. Celia sees the book with all of Marco's symbols and the names and hair of the performers. And then Marco shows Celia his workroom, which has a miniature version of the circus made out of folded paper with charms and symbols and strings connecting all of it together. They kiss and they enjoy each other's company in an adult manner. And in the morning, Celia takes Marco's book before she leaves while he is still sleeping. Part four, incendiary. November 1st, 1901. Sneaking out of Marco's flat, Celia has a conversation with her ghost father. She says that she wants to study Marco's book so that she can take over his half of controlling the circus and he'll be free from the challenge. Her father says it doesn't work that way, and Celia, re- Celia realizes that the winner is the last one alive. Celia asks who won the last challenge between her father and the man in gray, and he says that the man in gray's last student is the contortionist at the circus. Interlude. You see people do magic with fire. Uh, November 1st, 1901. On the train to the next circus site, Celia talks with Sukiko, the contortionist. Sukiko says she would like the circus to continue after Celia's challenge is concluded. Sukiko says that she loved her opponent in her challenge as well, but her opponent sacrificed herself to end the contest and set Sukiko free, and her opponent is now a pile of ash. October 31st, 1902. Uh, Bailey realizes that the circus must be on a train and he rushes to the train station, but there's no sign of the circus, though there are a few people in red scarves who talk with him about the circus and they say they're soon going to find out where it is next. And he's basically just adopted by this group of reviewers. Uh, August 1902, Marco visits Celia's tent and she asks him not to visit again so that she can finish the challenge. So now all the timelines are in 1902. We're really building and these chapters are getting shorter and the pace is is picking up. September 1902, Celia and Marco are visiting by their mentors, and they're both ticked about the stupid contest. Interlude, you watch a snake charmer. The snakes change color from white to black during the performance. October 31st, 1902, Poppet and Widget find Celia and say, it's a real problem that the circus left early because Poppet's had a vision about a boy named Bailey who is really supposed to be with them right now. November 1st, 1902, Bailey and other reviewers arrive in New York, uh, where they've been told that the circus is setting up. When they meet with the local reviewer, he says that the circus arrived yesterday, but it never opened, and around midnight, there was a very loud noise and a flash from the circus like it had been struck by lightning, and Bailey just immediately, he runs to the circus. October 31st, 1902. So this is one day before Bailey arriving there and running to the circus. October 31st, 1902. In London, Isabel meets Marco. At the end of their conversation, she takes a handful of black powder and blows it onto Marco, who disappears. November 1st, 1902. Bailey sneaks into the circus, and the only person he meets is Sukiko, who mysteriously says that she needs to take him to meet someone. October 31st, 1902. Marco has been transported from London to the circus in New York. Sukiko is waiting for him. She gave Isabel the powder to help transport him 
here. Sukiko says that Celia is planning to sacrifice herself to allow Marco to win, just like Sukiko's opponent did decades ago. The talk about they talk about the story of Merlin, who became trapped in a tree, and Marco considers sacrificing himself to be trapped in the cauldron of fire, forever alive, but not really, allowing Celia to win the contest. So they're both just planning to kill themselves and allow the other win. Uh, but Sukiko says, Marco, you need to be the one to do this, because without Celia, the circus is not going to survive. But because you, Marco, you use the cauldron uh, as your touchstone within the circus, that's going to preserve your half of the circus, and it would carry on without you. Marco agrees, and he wants Sukiko, who has an affinity for fire magic, we find out, to help burn himself to end the game. But just as this is about to happen, Celia runs and throws herself into his arms and asks him to trust her. Then there's an explosion of light as Sukiko's spell and whatever Celia is doing interact, and Sukiko is left standing alone. The fire in the cauldron is out for the first time since it was lit. November 1st, 1902. Celia... Uh, Celia and Marco each wake up in different tents, seeing the circus around them as translucent. They have difficulty interacting with the physical world, but with focus, they're able to touch things. They find one another, and they see each other as completely solid and substantial. They embrace and kiss and declare their love for each other, but then Celia begins shaking, and Marco asks her to just let go of her focus on the circus, but she says that if she does that, the circus will collapse, and because the circus is now the touchstone of their existence, that would not be good for them. November 1st, 1902. Bailey finds a ghostly Marco who leads him past the rest of the circus which is frozen in time. And Celia asks Bailey, uh, Marco takes Bailey to Celia, and Celia asks him to take on responsibility for the circus. With the help of Poppet and Widget and the less than physical Celia and Marco, Celia says that Bailey should be able to handle this burden so that she and Mark, uh, that she and Marco have been, sh- have been sharing, but he must agree to this. Bailey refuses saying that he's not special special. And Celia agrees <laughs> saying, quote, you're not destined or chosen. And I wish I could tell you that you were, if that would make it easier, easier, but it's not true. You're in the right place at the right time and you care enough to do what needs to be done. And sometimes that's enough. Bailey agrees to it. Having made his own choice, Marco puts a ring on Bailey's hand, which burns his skin, and he is now bound to the circus. November 1st, 1902, Bailey finds Marco's book, as well as several other significant objects representing Marco and Celia, and some representing himself, Poppet, and Widget, and he throws them all into the cauldron, and with a lighter from Sukiko, he relights the cauldron, and time restarts in the circus. Part 5, we're almost done, folks. Divination. (laughs) Interlude. You visit the fortune teller, who reads for you, but reminds you that the future is never set in stone. December 1902, Poppet visits Chandresh who is in Marco's room trying to make sense of blueprints. He is found there. He's clearly still not himself. Poppet asks for him to sign over the business of the circus to her, Widget, Bailey, uh, and then the engineer and, and also Lainey. And Poppet helps Chandresh to see, after he signs over the circus, um, they look at the blueprints again. He sees that they're blueprints for museum. And for the first time since he was bound to the circus, the fire of imagination and a new idea begins to burn within him. And he's ecstatic to have a new project and begins reworking the blueprints uh, with, with just absolute excitement. January 1903, Widget is meeting with the man in gray. When the man asks Widget what his particular talent is, Widget says, telling stories. And the man is very excited by this because there's magic in stories. Widget wants the man's stake in the circus. He was one of the original founders, and he still has a legal and magical stake within the circus. And the man in gray wants to be paid with the story of the circus. And Widget begins, the circus arrives without warning, which is the first line of the novel. (laughs) I love that. Epilogue. You are leaving the circus as dawn is creeping up. As you pass the ticket booth, a worker waves you over and gives you a card that reads, Le Cirque de Rêve, Mr. Bailey Alden Clark, proprietor, bailey at nightcircus.com. The end. Wow. By the way, before I tap out and let you guys talk for a while, 
I sent an email today to that email address. I did too. <laughs> Just to see. I assumed it would either say it doesn't exist or you'd get some auto response. And I did. Uh, yep. The response said... Thank you for your interest in Le Cirque de Rev. If you're inquiring as to the itinerary of the circus, we apologize, but it is against our policy to disclose information about current or upcoming locations. Other <laughs> inquiries will be responded to in as timely a manner as possible. Cheers, Aaron. Aaron yeah. I got the same yeah. one. <laughs> Though she is listed as assistant to Mr. Clark in the email, which would be Bailey. Nice. All right, I'm going to tap out and let you guys talk. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, we said at the top of this that we were going to talk about Celia. So, I mean, there's, there are a million different things that we could talk about with this book. It is rich <laughs> and it is, man, reading books like this, this is the reason why I do this podcast because I never would have read this book otherwise because I, I, I don't have time <laughs> to just pick up 500 page novels <laughs> and you, on a whim and you still and don't have them. time, but you do it anyway. Cause there's a podcast, <laughs> but I do it because there's a podcast and I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I, we've, we cover a lot of material in this. This is just, this was so delightful. And I finished this novel and just, I did a big sigh. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, that was a great, great story. And, uh, I'm anyway, I'm really glad that we got to, that we're going to talk about this right now. Um, I think we should probably start talking about Celia. Okay. Real quick. I want to ask Kirsta, you fit, read this for the first time fairly recently too. Is Correct. That right? okay. Yeah. So this was, this was vaguely on my to read list. I'd, I'd seen it mentioned a number of places and library thing, which is like the little sibling of Goodreads that has better <laughs> stats, go on library thing, um, had recommended it quite a few times based on other books that I have. And it also had a very high rating on this site. It was like over four stars, which is really high for that site. And then I was... It's a tough crowd. <laughs> it is. <laughs> librarian crowd. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's not just, it's not just librarians. It's just a, it's just a social, a book, social media site. But, uh, I was stalking your guys's schedule to see if if there was anything else I wanted to drop in for. And I saw the night circus and I was like, Oh, I was vaguely meaning to read that. And then it was checked in at the library where I work. So I <laughs> walked downstairs and checked it out. So <laughs> worked out very well. And you, I was surprised by how many people in our Facebook group, when we said that we were going to do this, were like, Oh yeah, I just read that recently. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of people have been reading this. Yeah. In I think uh, when it first came out, brother John gave me a copy and then, for a while there, we don't have it going now, but my family had a kind of a month long book club where everyone in the family tried to read the same book. And I think my sister Kate mm-hmm. chose this uh, book for that a little bit after my brother had, John had given it to me. So I, ha- I had read it and discussed it with my family, but the, I, I want to say that was back in like shortly after it came out uh, or, you know, either the year it came out or the next year. And I hadn't reread it until now and rereading it. I think I got more out of it than the first time through just, just oh, because. Man. Um, well, and I, I will also say writing a summary, maybe get more like the timelines <laughs> became a lot clearer when yeah. I had to write the summary. I remember being yeah. a fairly confused at times as to like, wait, when right. and having to like go flip back chapters and say, when is this one taking place in comparison to that one? And writing the summary clarified a lot of that. <laughs> I, I will say I went into it, not very, not really knowing very much. Like I'd seen a, like a two paragraph summary or something, but I didn't even read the, um, you know, like the, like the blurb on the book or whatever, because it, it was, it was highly recommended enough that it was like, well, whatever this is, this is good. Um, and then it ended up being very different from what I thought it would be because, because the, 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 the synopsis is like these two musician or these two magicians pit their students against each other in a fight at a circus. And it sounded kind of like circus fight club or something, which like, <laughs> very much is not. Yeah. But, 
Well, and I have to say, I guess, Todd, I know you want to get to Celia, so we'll get to that in a second. I'm, I'm dying to talk about her. I think she's so but cool. But I just want to say, uh, like, my synopsis, I tried to keep it to, like, bare bones plot, mm-hmm. and the magic of this book is the descriptions. Right. And the atmosphere that is created through the prose. And the bare bones plot, I think, is still interesting, and hopefully that sounded like something you'd go pick up, but the, like, the descriptions of the circus are so much more than what I was able to give you when I'm rushing through the plot of a 400-page novel. It's... <laughs> It's enchanting. I mean, it really is magical. It, you, it, you get sucked into this world. W- one of our listeners, Liz, she asked um, if you could spend, like, where what what tent would you spend all your time in if you got to go to the night circus? Uh, my answer to her was, I haven't finished reading the book yet. I'll tell you when it's over. <laughs> and I could tell her and all of you now uh, it would be with the illusionist. I, w- <laughs> I would just sit in Celia's tent and watch her do this magic that she does. It's... I, I'm. I was amazed by it. I thought it was so cool. So, so several times when Marco visits her, it mentions that like she finishes her performance, and there's a man that just sits in the chair, and and after everyone filters out, she she appears in the chair next to him, and they talk, and it's Marco. Almost always, and I'm like, how is everyone? How is anyone leaving this tent? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I know. That's like, how, how would ever leave? How is it not like just the whole audience is like, yes, more please. I'm gonna wait for the next show. <laughs> and and I think. Th- you did a you did a fine job with this synopsis, but there's no way for you to describe the kind of magic that she's doing. But I mean, she's her clothes change colors. Uh, she like papers become birds that settle on like people. really yeah. become birds and they fly around and it's it's just un unbelievable. And it's in a it's kind of in the round. She's in the middle. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that's where I'd be. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's the tent I would choose. Kirsten, do you have one off the top of your head? Um, I don't, off the top, maybe the ice garden. I like yeah. the ice garden a lot. And a lot of these tents, you get like these hints at what they are, uh, but there's no details. Uh, and uh-huh. so it's left to your imagination, which I think is a really intelligent way to preserve the magic of the circus is, is to, um, just kind of give these tastes of all, all the other things that are going on around you, uh, but not revealing too much about what's going on behind these curtains. So besides doing astounding magic, uh, what do we like about Celia? Why is she a great character in this great story? Okay. She has a little bit of, uh, the Rapunzel, <laughs> Uh Uh, that we talked about way back in one of our earliest episodes. Uh, This character who's raised by a horrible person, but is remarkably (laughs) well-adjusted coming Uh coming out of it. Um, But I would say she doesn't have, obviously, the kind of naive innocence uh, that Rapunzel seems to somehow maintain, (laughs) having been raised by Mother Uh Gothel. Uh, so, So she has more probing curiosity but but also like um i, I guess some reticence because she see from her father she she sees darkness in the world but there's also i think one thing that is really interesting in this book is that these characters that i i love so many of these characters very few of them are actually like innocent for everything that goes on around them uh-huh. like there's some darkness to all of them marco does some pretty <laughs> like he manipulates people's minds in very morally questionable ways and yeah. uh she allows things to happen and i think one of the most powerful chapters is when uh it's laney laney confronts her about tara's death and kind of says people you know the people can't be put together yeah. like like a teacup can and you let that happen basically you let my sister die uh, well, and I think that I think the theme of illusion is very interesting because it's very significant that when Celia shows up to to visit Herr Thiessen or Thiessen, uh, the clockmaker, he recognizes her as the illusionist, and and most people don't when she's not, you know, when she's sort of you know, yeah, exactly, and so and so the idea of 
of, um, you know, seeing what we expect to see and illusion and the idea that you could, you could be in love with this sort of amazing celebrity and then not recognize them when you see them. And what does that mean about what you really know about them? But because I think, you know, I think it's kind of implied that he appreciates her in a more pure way or in a more genuine way Uh or something that that's why he recognizes her immediately because or he loves the circus in a very genuine way that he recognizes her when other people don't. And, and when, when Poppet and Widget, you know, just walk among the other people in the circus when they're not in their costumes and people don't pay any attention to them if they're just kind of dressed down and not, and not in their clothing. I think that's a very interesting theme and, and how Celia kind of deals with that and negotiates it and tries to do good things with it or make a good life out of it. Even when she's had this honestly horrific upbringing. <laughs> so. I love, I love when she finally meets the clockmaker and he realizes that the same this the same woman that is the illusionist is the same woman that he has been corresponding with by mail mm-hmm. for years and she says i'm so sorry to have deceived you for all of this time like i hope you can forgive me and he says what are you kidding me <laughs> i just realized that like the two people that i love the most in this world are the same person <laughs> and and he's just like so happy and i i think it says a lot about him and it says a lot about her that she, I don't, I, I, it almost brings us back to the like Scarlet Pimpernel conversation that we had about secret identities. All roads come back to the Scarlet Pimpernel talk. All roads lead back to the Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> but it's cool that um, there seems to be some like integrity through, throughout this. Like she is, she ha- she plays different roles, mm-hmm. but she seems to be the same person right. in all of those roles. Well, and and there's also my theorem of secret identity relationships, which is that like, and, and this, it's not really a romantic relationship between Celia and, and Hertison, but that if you want to be like on an equal footing with someone, they have to figure out who you truly are. You can't just tell them. Otherwise that, that always kind of puts you on an unequal footing. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing about Celia that I think is really interesting. And I don't know why we're having so many callbacks to previous conversation, but it made me think about when we did the hunger games and we talked about Katniss and we played, yes. we, we said like, that was the next place I was going <laughs> a, agent you. or like, or actor or reactor, I think is, is how it uh-huh. was. And she is very much an actor. Like, mm-hmm. even though she doesn't understand the world that she's been thrust in, like no one explains what the, the rules of this contest are. She takes control of the contest yeah, um, in a very proactive way and asserts her will onto something that really she should have been bound to be unable to do so. <laughs> like her will had been sacrificed from the time she was five years old, but she is strong enough to reclaim that. And I think that's says something really interesting about her as well. Do you think that, um, so did you see that this was a fight to the death from early on? Um, I saw it probably about halfway through I, and I was actually kind uh-huh. of surprised when they didn't see it coming when they didn't see it coming. So I, I was thinking about the Hunger Games, and there is kind of an element of Hunger Games in this, right? They've created an arena. Mm-hmm. It's a fight to the death. It, it, the it, One interesting difference is that Hunger Games is set up from the very beginning in exposition. They tell you this is a fight to the death mm-hmm. and everybody that goes in. Um, and here you don't realize what the stakes are. I mean, they don't realize what the stakes are until the very end. Right. And I wonder um, how that changes, how that changes the – like the way that they approach it. Well, I think because so much of this is play. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much like, just like joie de vivre, right? In this, they're just enjoying doing what they do. And, and their mentors are telling them, don't get attached. Don't get involved. Uh, And they're like, how can I not be involved when I'm co-creating this incredible circus with this other person? I think it's, I think it's a really important difference. If you went into the hunger games and you didn't know, 
that nobody could come out alive, I think you would be far more interested in collaborating with people and developing relationships and um, anyway, just a thought. It kind of makes me wonder how these games have gone down in the past because we know that for we know that for Celia and Marco, they were each ready to sacrifice themselves for the other because they were stuck in this place where they could never really be together, but they could also never really leave, and so that would have ended the game. And with um, with Sukiko and and her competitor, it ended the same way. And it makes me wonder, exact same way. you know, do the contests always end that way? Have some of them just been straight up combative, where the students just yeah. kind of fought each other to the death? Was I mean. Has there, has something about the two, the two magicians shaped the contest in this way? Because they say that, that Alexander deliberately picked someone who is as different from Celia as possible, but then it means that their magic and their personalities are very complementary. And so it's almost like they can't help but fall in love. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, uh, the mentors seem really perturbed that they're falling in love, mm-hmm. but the history that we're given in this book is two contests and they fell in love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so maybe the, uh, the mentors are just really bad at setting up the contest that they wanted to go. <laughs> or, you know, or maybe but, all right, we is... know they're bad mentors, right? <laughs> yes. But also maybe they're bad yes. designers of magical challenges. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this game was badly designed. <laughs> they've been do they've been at this for a very long time. Yeah. Hundreds of years is implied. Right. Easily hundreds. Yeah. So I would, I mean, I would suspect that in over those hundreds of years, we've probably seen lots of different versions of the thing. I can't imagine right. that hundreds of years later, like <laughs> they fell in love again. But but I do wonder, like, has the contest evolved in such a way that now this is always the result? Because they're they're also both so cold, like emotionally cold. And there's this interesting contrast between between like the because it's kind of implied that part of the reason they're so there's you know such a terrible father and such terrible father figures they're so old they kind of don't have emotions anymore they've sort of lost yes. that humanity and then mm-hmm. and then marco and celia have so much passion that there's like literally magic explosions when they kiss and so and like and like okay there's like a little too much passion here like like calm down kids you're kind of like you know destroying people's lives just because you're you're so young and energetic and so and, and so i do kind of wonder if the game has has evolved in that direction as as these two people who grow up without love find each other and find their equals and find someone who's complementary to them you know what do you think about that so i was I can I can imagine that a lot of people like this because this is a great love story. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and uh, Morgan Stern, she does a great job of writing like uh, tension. Yes, that's true. That's, <laughs> and, this book is like ninety eight percent tension. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's really it's really well written, and there, this is an this is an intense and passionate love relationship, romantic relationship between these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of intense romantic relationship that sometimes leads people into really destructive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, Romeo and Juliet, I'm thinking of you. <laughs> Cough. <laughs> uh, and, and just sort of a like, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what the consequences are for anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm in love with you. And so, you know, we'll burn the world down around yeah. us. Uh, Although they do desperately want to preserve the circus. Yes. And this okay. is what I'm getting at is that, <laughs> is that I think that they are able to avoid this. And it's one of the reasons that I, that I like Celia as a character so much is because she does love him. And it is that kind of intense, intensely passionate love, but they're still both working so hard to try to find a way to make it work for everybody, right. not just for them. Right. And you could look at that from a selfish perspective to say that the circus is 
how they fell in love at a distance and the circus is the evidence of their love for each other. But it's also, you know, the livelihood and the joy of many other people. Also the life, depending on how magically people are bound to it. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, don't you think they both would have been happy walking away from the circus if they could? Yeah, I mean, that's the conversation where Marco says, like, do you want to? Yeah. And, and she, the reason she knows... She says, try it. ...is because yeah. she has already tried it. Like, she's yeah. tried to figure out how she could walk away, and she knows that she gets the burning pain that is, like, she cannot function with the pain right. that happens. And so when he really tries it, you know, it it happens to him. So I, I would 100% say if they could have walked away the circus and the circus was still going to keep going, right. they would have. Right. Yeah, I would say the same thing. And I think that she really does care about Papa and Widget. Uh, she cares about Kiko and, and she cares about the, the reviewers and all of the, yeah. <laughs> she wants, she wants this to work, but she wants it to work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that it takes a lot of guts as a, as a character to say, I want, I want this to work, not just for me, but I want it to work for everybody. And she, she takes that agency and she takes this book and she locks himself or herself in, in her room like, I am going to figure this out. And she does. And I think that's awesome. I will say it's really, the circus is really the only happiness either of them has ever known. I mean, because she was just with her father all the time and like her, you know, mm-hmm. her abusive upbringing. And then she had to go pretend to be a medium all the time. And so I don't think either of them really has any idea of what a happy life is outside of the circus, you know, and maybe they could uh-huh. have walked away, but like, what are they going to do? Just go like live in a house in London. I mean, maybe they could, but they I could live in a tiny house and he would make it seem huge <laughs> and magical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something tells me that they would be, they would somehow muddle okay. along. <laughs> they would be able to supply the necessary right. things for life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think they would really well, struggle. Where do you want to go today? Mm, the book boat. Okay. Listeners, we have, we have reached a conclusion. We have come to a realization, and that is that with a novel this good and this long, long, we have way more to talk about than we can fit into a one-hour podcast. So we are going to uh, change the rules of the protagonist podcast. We're going to end this episode now, and uh, and we will continue our conversation sometime. Much like Marco and Celia taking... (laughs) control of the the situation around them we are grasping this situation and saying no we're not going to follow the old rules and confine ourselves this needs to spill over yes so we are becoming a glass of wine in the ocean (laughs) we are we're spilling over so but for now we will conclude this episode of this podcast and we would remind you to subscribe to the protagonist podcast in itunes and leave us a review there Uh, we love uh reading those reviews it helps uh us gain more uh, listeners and uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod at Todd K Mac and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew is at under Andrew underscore Dorowski and Kirsta, you are BYU underscore librarian. BYU underscore librarian. Uh, our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. And we've had really delightful conversations over the last uh, few weeks there. So I encourage you to look us up. 
If you like this show and would like to support us financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. If you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation for the show with a monetary donation, you can click the support link in, in our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. I also remind you to make all of your Amazon purchases at protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week. Uh, so long. So long. Okay, I feel like we should get this started yes. <laughs> because I've been up until 2.30 in the morning the last two nights in a row. And, okay. Uh, I, I'm like, I'm running on fumes We're right going to cut now, the so. Woody Banner talk because we just need to get into okay. this. <laughs>